Uh, good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. I am Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at Cato, uh, and I am also honored to serve as the moderator for today's book forum. When reading press coverage of the financial crisis, one constantly comes across phrases such as, uh, the banks did this, the banks did that. Lost in these generalities is that there was no one response to the financial crisis or to the events that preceded it. Different firms took different approaches. While several CEOs and their boards made poor decisions that eventually led to their failure, others made good decisions, prudent decisions, and even sometimes brilliant decisions that not only saved their firms, but also allowed these firms to gain market share and come out of the crisis stronger than, than, than ever. While in my own writings, I have tended to place considerable emphasis upon the poor public policy choices that caused this crisis, it's important to keep in mind that not every bank responded to these policies in the same manner. Consider for a moment the role of monetary policy leading up to the crisis. The Federal Reserve engineered a very steep yield curve that provided firms with a very strong incentive to borrow short and lend long. I wouldn't say it's an exaggeration that Bear Stearns was largely done in by the extreme mismatch in, it, in its assets and liabilities. However, firms chose a different strategy while facing the same yield curve. For instance, the book discusses the funding strategy of Goldman, which while less profitable at the time, ended up being far more stable. The book discussed today, while some firms thrive while others fail, is fundamentally about why different firms made correct decisions while others did not. I think it's particularly appropriate that today's book forum is being held in the Hayek Auditorium. And although the author does not directly cite Hayek, the core issue identified in the book is one that I believe is central to Hayek's work, that is the use of knowledge. At the risk of overgeneralization, what separated successful firms from the failures was how well management utilized the dispersed information within both their firms and the marketplace. Firms that failed were largely those where management was insulated and depended almost exclusively on their own knowledge. Firms that succeeded were those where management harnessed the information within their firm by creating effective feedback mechanisms. Uh, the author, Tom Stanton, will provide us with exactly how and a discussion of which firms were able to utilize this information, this knowledge dispersed within the firm. Uh, let me go back and remember a little bit when I first came to Washington after finishing my doctorate. Uh, and one of the first books I was exposed to was Tom's book he wrote in 1991 titled A State of Risk where the government-sponsored enterprises be the next financial crisis. Uh, clearly, Tom was years ahead of his time, and unfortunately, his predictions came out to be all too accurate. Uh, and he's got a very long track record, in my opinion, of being one of the foremost uh, forecasters of the, of the state of the uh, financial services industry in terms of policy. Uh, when he is not writing books, he spends his time as a fellow at the Center for Advanced Governmental Studies at the John Hopkins University. Tom also served as staff on the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, uh, and while in my opinion, there's a few things I would disagree with in this commission's findings. Uh, one thing that I know for certain is that the commission's report and work was far stronger because of Tom's involvement. Uh, the book here today is also informed largely by Tom's experience on the commission staff. We are also very fortunate to have with us Alex Pollack to offer his thoughts on the book. Currently, Alex is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, I first got to know Alex about a decade ago when he was president and chief operating officer of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago, a position he held from 1991 to 2004. Uh, and I would also say I've always found um, Alex to be one of the most insightful commentators on the financial services industry. So with that, I'm going to turn the podium over to Tom. Thanks very much, Mark. Uh, good afternoon. I think it's afternoon. Um, it's a real pleasure to join you today at the Cato Institute. 
I'm extremely grateful to Cato, and I want to express my thanks. Years ago, I wrote a monograph that raised questions about the financial soundness of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and then I wrote the book that Mark alluded to, um, A State of Risk, Will Government-Sponsored Enterprises Be the Next Financial Crisis? Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac didn't like my monograph, and they didn't like my book. And they didn't suddenly, like you. Hmm? And they didn't like you. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly, uh, it, it became a little chilly. And Catherine England, who at the time was the head of regulatory affairs at Cato, invited me in out of the cold and said, why don't you present what you have found and what's happening? Uh, came to a luncheon meeting such as this. There were a number of senior federal officials who had simply taken GSEs for granted. And uh, suddenly, we were launched on trying at least to sound the alarm and to reform um, the structure and the oversight of government-sponsored enterprises. So I'm very grateful to Cato. Unfortunately, as Peter Wallison of AEI has pointed out, our largest financial institutions today are like government-sponsored enterprises. They benefit from the belief that government will bail out their debt holders. Now, shareholders may like high-risk bets, particularly high leverage, because they get the high returns from those high risks, at least until something goes wrong. By contrast, debt holders have traditionally been a force for moderation in the marketplace, because they only get a fixed rate of interest, whatever the debt obligation promises, and when the company starts to take more risk, they're disadvantaged. But implicit, implicit government backing of the debt of our largest financial institutions mean that this market discipline has suddenly uh, been undermined. So today I want to talk about my new book, uh, Why Some Firms Thrive While Others Fail. Um, and as uh, Mark noted, this builds on my work at the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. Um, we studied internal documents. I can't tell you how many. Um, from financial institutions and their regulators, interviewed CEOs, risk officers, bankers, traders, regulators, policymakers, and a number of other people to try to understand from everybody's perspective, putting it all together, what went on here. And in 2010, we were still in a stage when people on Wall Street and in the financial system were in shock and were pretty ready to tell us their story. I don't need to tell you, particularly looking at the uh, younger age of this audience, that the financial crisis was immensely expensive with pervasive effects in the country. Maybe 10 million households are going to lose their homes to foreclosure. House prices declined to the point where almost a quarter of homes are worth less than the mortgages on the property. The unemployment rate doubled. Millions of people lost their jobs. Median household wealth fell by trillions of dollars. The poverty rate rose to its highest level in 17 years, and graduating students have a lot harder time finding appropriate work than ever before. Much of this damage might have been avoided or at least mitigated by better governance, risk management, and better management generally in both the public and private sectors. Perhaps the most important task before us and, and what I tried to do in writing this book is to understand the expensive lessons of the crisis, 
for our public and private institutions and how we can avoid these mistakes in the future. In the book, I try to understand the differences between four major firms that successfully navigated the crisis and eight that failed or required government support to stay afloat, which in my book is failure. I studied four surviving firms, J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, and Toronto Dominion Bank, now TD Bank, which since the crisis has appeared here in Washington on a number of street corners. J.P. Morgan Chase's story is of preparing the company in advance to be strong enough to take advantage of long-term opportunities. Goldman's is a firm-wide systems and capacity to react quickly to changes in the environment and then, of course, tripping heavily over reputational risk. Wells is a company with a culture of customer focus and restraint, and TD Bank provides a simple lesson. If you don't understand it, don't invest in it. Each of these firms applied strong governance, good management, operational competence, and discipline, but with different approaches. Some of these firms have had serious problems since the crisis, and of course, J.P. Morgan Chase actually lost billions of dollars in their London office in an event that reveals poor risk management. But the point here is these firms had successful strategies for weathering the crisis. There is a huge difference between taking a large loss, such as Morgan recently took, and having the company fail. The companies that failed the crisis didn't just take losses, they went out of business, required massive amounts of taxpayer aid, or entered into mergers that ended their existence as independent companies. Unsuccessful firms included Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, Bear Stearns, Lehman, Merrill Lynch, Citigroup, Wachovia, UBS, AIG, Countrywide, IndyMac, and WAMU. With variations, they exhibited similar shortcomings in organization, governance, and management. Many of these institutions had become so unwieldy that they were virtually impossible to manage as integrated enterprises. While managers may have profited from agglomeration into organizations of a trillion dollars in size or more, it's not clear that this massive size benefited market efficiency or the financial system or for firms that failed their shareholders. We forget how large our financial conglomerates actually are. In 2008, Citigroup with 350,000 employees and nearly 2,500 subsidiaries was the largest complex financial institution. AIG, smaller than most of the major firms, comprised some 223 companies that operated in 130 countries and had 116,000 employees. And in my book, I try to share with the reader exactly how complex these firms are. And the AIG org chart, and remember, they're really small compared to our large complex financial institutions, takes up four pages of fine print and a huge number of organizational boxes. Weak governance compounded organizational shortcomings. Overbearing CEOs dominated weak boards that failed to uphold the duty of respectfully challenging management to provide feedback and propose limitations, and probe limitations of proposed management initiatives. 
Another characteristic of unsuccessful firms was their pursuit of short-term growth without appropriate regard for risk. In 2005 to 2007, both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac decided to increase their purchases of subprime and all-day mortgages, just as home prices peaked and declined. Other firms, Lehman and Wamu, also decided to increase risk around the same time. Some firms, Countrywide, AIG, Citi, simply continued the blind pursuit of market share without regard to changing market circumstances. So where were the regulators? To say the least, government's actions before the crisis were seriously inadequate to protect against an economic debacle. Not unrelated is the fact that the financial insurance and real estate sector was by far the greatest source of campaign contributions to federal candidates and parties, contributing almost half a billion dollars in the election cycle 2007-2008 alone. The financial services industry too often used its clout to lobby for government policies that ultimately hurt rather than benefited major financial firms. Classic was the way that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac fought for years against more capable supervision and better capital standards that might have saved them from making the bad decisions that destroyed the two companies in 2008. The industry's political strength impeded other supervisory actions as well, such as the effort of regulators to try to limit excessive lending concentrations in non-traditional mortgages or commercial real estate. The question then becomes whether, from the perspective of organization and management, there's any major recommendation that, if well implemented, could have allowed more firms to survive. The literature on decision-making in large organizations actually yields an answer. Sidney Finkelstein of the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth and his colleagues analyzed decision-making in large organizations. They found that bad decisions required two elements. First, an initial flawed decision that the CEO or another influential person made, and second, a poorly structured decision process that failed to provide facts and input to correct the mistake. To overcome this, good decision-making requires what my book calls constructive dialogue. If I may borrow a felicitous phrase, feedback is a gift. Doubts and dissent need to be seen as offers to rethink a preliminary decision before it potentially causes harm. In the financial sector, successful firms managed to create productive and constructive tension between those who wanted to do deals or offer certain financial products and services and those in the firm who were responsible for limiting risk exposures. By creating a respectful exchange of views among these divergent perspectives, successful firms freed themselves to find constructive outcomes that took the best from each point of view. Instead of simply deciding to do a deal or not, successful firms considered ways to hedge risks or otherwise reduce exposure from doing the deal. Successful firms created opportunity for constructive dialogue between CEOs and their boards, CEOs and their top management, and between revenue-producing units and risk officers. The unsuccessful firms pursued revenue-producing ventures without constructive dialogue with those concerned about risk. 
I mean, my favorite example is a credit officer at Fannie Mae who went to his boss saying, we're, we're buying these mortgages and we're really paying too much given the amount of risk they contain. And the boss said to him, can you tell me why you're the only person in this company who believes in your model? They disregarded from their risk officers. Freddie Mac in 2005 fired his CEO, his chief risk officer, just as the company increased its risk taking. Lehman's CEO sidelined his chief risk officer in 2007. And by contrast, because of their application of constructive dialogue and a robust sense of the risk-reward trade-off, successful firms sometimes retain more capital than their competitors and many times refrain from lucrative but risky types of products and transactions that seem to be making so much money for their competitors. Constructive dialogue was ingrained in the company's culture. This also, this pattern also applies to non-financial firms. My book discusses decision-making and costly mistakes such as the BP Gulf oil spill, fatalities at the Massey Mining Company, and hospital medical errors. Failures at non-financial firms show the same patterns of overbearing or distracted CEOs or others, such as doctors, who make poor decisions without obtaining feedback. Cultures that emphasize production without adequate consideration of risk and inept regulators. CEOs of large complex financial institutions need feedback from capable sources. My suggestion here is to apply constructive dialogue to relations between large complex financial inst institutions and their supervisors. While regulators may not have the expertise available, do not, <clears throat> available to large complex financial institutions, they're in a position to ask simple questions, such as about the amount of capital that a firm has allocated to back potentially risky activities, or whether the firm is lowering standards to meet aggressive goals for growth, or the question someone should have asked about Chase's London office while it was making large profits and before it took its $5.8 billion loss this year. Are you making all of your money because you're the smartest person in this highly competitive market? Or are you simply taking more risk than everyone else? <laughs> Feedback from regulators can improve decisions merely by posing the right questions and pursuing the answers. Constructive dialogue is a two-way street. Feedback isn't worth a lot if it comes from an inept source. Regulators need to be open to input that examiners are engaged in checking the box compliance drills without understanding the real risks of the company's business, or that there are too many examiners from multiple regulators on site without a focus on the most important issues, or that particular examiners are not open to constructive dialogue. Constructive dialogue can improve decision-making all the way around. It can help to improve quality at both regulators and the firms they supervise, or as CEO Edmund Clark, who successfully led TD Bank through the crisis, argues, there must be, quote, productive working partnerships between the industry and its regulators, enabling both parties to agree in principle on what needs to be done and on the least intrusive way in making it happen. My book cites testimony of Shell Oil Company Marvin Odom, 
to the Deepwater Horizon Commission that was investigating the BP Gulf oil spill. He said, quote, the industry needs a robust, expertly staffed, and well-funded regulator that can keep pace with and augment industry's technical expertise. A competent and nimble regulator will be able to establish and enforce the rules of the road to ensure safety without stifling innovation and commercial success. Rex Tillerson, chairman and CEO of ExxonMobil, told the Deepwater Horizon Commission much the same thing. Odom's and Tillerson's observations about the petroleum industry apply to the financial sector as well. To improve both our public and private institutions, we need to have higher quality supervision aimed at improving decision-making in the industry and thus greater economic efficiency. Regulators are not always right. Rather, we need regulators that are capable of offering high-quality feedback to our largest financial institutions so that, through constructive tensions with their regulators, firms make improved decisions that take account of long-term sustainability and not merely short-term profits and bonuses. This can free us from some of the sterile debate about whether there's too much regulation or too little. The results of that debate, I respectfully suggest, are thousands of pages of laws and regulations that are unlikely to forestall another financial crisis in the future. Indeed, government uh, rescues of large insolvent firms, coupled with the substantial compensation that CEOs and senior managers of failed firms manage to keep for themselves, mean that once the economy returns to a semblance of health, incentives to take uneconomic risks may be even greater than before. Opening constructive dialogue on these issues will not be easy given the current atmosphere in Washington, but would seem well worth the effort. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Alex is going to offer a few comments. Thanks very much to Mark and Cato for giving me the opportunity to comment uh, on Tom's very interesting and very useful book. Uh, I say that as having been a practicing uh, banking executive. Overbearing CEO, eh? I was, I was a CEO for about 14 years. I wonder if I was overbearing. <laughs> Surely not. Uh, Tom, in his book, cites Frank Knight's uh, Risk, Uncertainty, and Profit, a deservedly famous work from 1921. And I consider Tom's theme to be how to address uh, the reality uh, stated thus by Knight. Uncertainty is one of the fundamental facts of life. It is ineradicable from business decisions. Uh, one interpreter uh, of Knight expanded on this a little bit. He said, uh, as Knight says, most business decisions, especially strategic ones, are to varying degrees steps into the unknown. Each of the possible outcomes of a business venture can be considered to have some probability of occurring, but these probabilities are not known to the players or to the decision makers. Now, you really, to get Knight right, you have to change that sentence a little bit. These probabilities are not known and cannot be known to the players. And this is Knightian uncertainty. Uh, 
uh, indeed. So how some firms thrive while others fail can be thought of as how they deal with such uncertainty. And the fact that many things which were considered impossible by many, if not most people, have a way of nonetheless happening. And Tom gives us a most valuable exploration of this, uh, drawing insightfully uh, from many uh, interviews, as has been said, uh, with the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. But I would point out, it is not only firms who have this problem. It's any and all organizations, including governments and central banks, dealing with uncertainty and the inability to know what the results of their own actions will be. For example, how should the Federal Reserve have considered in the early 2000s its strategy, as Mark referred to, of encouraging a boom in housing and trying to cause housing prices to rise uh, in order to produce a wealth effect to offset the then recession? Uh, how, what kind of internal debates and risk management should the Federal Reserve have had? Now, the personal accounts of discussions and arguments about the riskiness uh, of actions in Tom's book uh, is uh, deeply instructive and displays the amount of uncertainty involved in such discussions. It reminds me of my old friend Hyman Minsky, uh, Tom Seitz uh, Minsky, in the book. Uh, uh, Hi uh, and I used to have very uh, interesting discussions while he was still alive. And he told me one day, and I think he never published this story, but he told me this in person. He said, look, the, the economic and financial system is made up of two fundamental types. And Minsky called them entrepreneurs and bankers. He said, now, uh, entrepreneurs are warm, optimistic, energetic, risk-loving, self-confident, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Uh, and if they're successful, they show that they actually can do all these things. Bankers in the Minsky world need to be cold, rational, pessimistic, cynical, uh, and in worried about the risks. Said Minsky to me, well, a, a healthy economy or financial system is the result of an ongoing dialectic or balance between uh, these two fundamental types. I think we can see a lot of this in Tom's book. Now, uh, this is uh, underlined by a description in Frank Knight's Risk, Uncertainty, and Profit of the entrepreneurial type. Oh, uh, uh, Knight says, most men have an irrationally high confidence in their own good fortune, not the, in not the inherent bankers and risk managers, but, but many people an irrationally high confidence in their own good fortune, and this is doubly true when their personal prowess comes into the reckoning, when they are betting on themselves. There is little doubt that businessmen represent mainly the class of men in whom these things are most strikingly true. These are the entrepreneurs. They are not the critical and hesitant individuals whom they would describe as the weak-kneed naysayers and whatnot but rather those with restless energy, buoyant optimism, and large faith in themselves in particular. And this is the entrepreneurial type. Uh, and uh, these are exactly the characteristics which allow the entrepreneurs to achieve great things uh, 
and also to go broke. Uh, this is, uh, fits in this great quote that's in Tom's book about the, a long history of success is the biggest precursor to failure. Well, think of what the successful entrepreneur has learned. He's learned that when I have all of these uh, helpers around telling me I can't do this, it's too risky, it'll never work, and I do it anyway, and I succeed. So how does he look at all these advisors in the entrepreneur's eyes who want to tell him next time uh, you can't do it? And we have to ask ourselves, what happens to Minsky's um, a dialectic or balance between the entrepreneur and the banker, which I think is uh, such a nice way to think about this, when the entrepreneurs take over the banks? Mm -hmm. And this is the point Minsky was making. So when this entrepreneurial type takes over the bank, that's supposed to be the risk-averse, cynical, uh, worried-about-risk type. Well, what do you get? And, and well, you, 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 might get a, uh, you might get a bubble. Uh, and what can you do? Well, then you have to reproduce this dialectic of the entrepreneur and the banker, or the optimist and the pessimist, or the, uh, or the I-can-do-anything versus the uh, worrier and the, and the uh, focuser on risk. You have to reproduce this with a discussion inside the bank uh, or between the bank and others uh, outside. And I think Tom's book is really helpful in, uh, in exploring uh, how one might do this and how important it is to do this. As it happens, there are a lot of, well, that's easy to say, but in fact, it's hard to do. That's why we had four successful firms and nine fail failures. Uh, Actually, there were more of each, but there were... <laughs> Among the big ones, the failures really stood out. Um, and one of the problems is uh, this great saying of Keynes, that the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Uh, so, for example, if you were betting against housing for a lot of years, you would have lost a lot of money. And today, uh, with the Federal Reserve's manipulation of the bond market, how many times can you be crushed betting against bonds mm -hmm. and being sure that bonds will ultimately spike upward in yield, which they will, but how many times can you be crushed, as many people have been, worried about the risk before you give up? So we have the problem that when you cry wolf a lot of times and the wolf doesn't come, you lose credibility as a warning, as a warning device. But remember that in the great old fable of crying wolf, in the end, the wolf does come, and in financial cycles, uh, the wolf does come. Now, this problem of creating the internal dialectic or balance between the entrepreneur and the banker or the entrepreneur and the risk manager comes out nicely in some memoirs uh, by Louis XIV, uh, which he called Difficulties Surrounding Kings. And he talks about being king and having to confront the number of desires, importunities, and murmurings to which kings are exposed. The force of character, he says, is required to keep always the correct balance between so many people who are striving to make your judgment inclined to their side, each one of them applying himself wholly to give an appearance of justice to what he is seeking. That's true. Uh, and as Tom suggests, one of the things that you have to do, if you're going to do this right, as any organization, is to have the right inner circle 
around the CEO or the chairman or the leader. What, uh, what is the nature of this circle? It's a circle who is not impressed by the drama with which the leader uh, leads everybody else. You, you have to surround yourself not with people who love your drama and the great uh, 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 charisma that you have created, but who know you well enough to know that's all nonsense. Uh, you may be good, but you're not that good. And they will tell you the truth uh, and will fill in your inevitable gaps and mistakes and the inevitable gaps uh, in your own knowledge. Well, that's, you know, that's asking a lot of a human character to build an inner group like that. Uh, but I think that needs to be done, and that's one of the most important lessons in the book. Now, to conclude with this thing uh, that has to be done, which is really uh, powerful, uh, if done, but is not easy uh, to do, Tom's book shows that it can be done with the examples he cites. Uh, and as Tom says, this is completely different uh, from, as you just heard him say, thousands of pages of laws and regulations. That isn't what will do it. What will do it is building this, this Minsky-esque uh, dialectic or balance of the fundamental types of thinking uh, around, the, uh, around the inevitable and unavoidable uncertainty faced by all organizations, or to sum it up, how do we make sound judgments in the face of uncertainty? Well, well thank you, Alex. I wanted to first see if Tom wanted to have any uh, comment uh, on. Should I stand or sit? Uh, whatever makes you comfortable. I'm totally comfortable with either. Why don't I stand just so I can see people on the other side? Um, I, there's a lot of wisdom in, in Alex's uh, discussion, and I'm particularly delighted with Louis XIV. <laughs> um, Alex mentioned uh, central banks making mistakes. I personally interviewed a number of senior Fed officials, some retired, I guess most of them retired at that point, who said that when Chairman Bernanke, for whom I have a lot of respect for what he and, and Secretary Paulson did to deal with the crisis after it occurred, but in spring of 2007, Chairman Bernanke made a speech, and he said, this subprime crisis, this is going to be confined to the housing market. <clears throat> what we found in our interviews was that the economists had all done their calculations within the Fed and said, well, these are small numbers compared to the size of the banking system. The number of subprime mortgages is small enough everything will be fine. The supervisors, the examiners, the people that go out and oversee safety and soundness of banks at the Fed, who were really second-class citizens in the Fed's culture and structure, were screaming, we've seen the balance sheets of these institutions. They're highly leveraged. <clears throat> Excuse me, they can't take the hit. Because there was no constructive dialogue, or dialectic, as, as Alex would put it, between the, <clears throat> excuse me, between the economists and the supervisors, Chairman Bernanke made his optimistic statement without understanding that the supervisors had an awful lot to contribute to his knowledge and what he should have foreseen. <clears throat> so what I found in a number of organizations, public and private, is what I call, 
I don't put it in the book this way, a layer of cork between the top of the organization and the bottom. You can see in the NASA space shuttle disaster where the frontline engineers, both of them incidentally, where the frontline engineers knew there was a problem and somehow their concerns run into a layer of, <coughs> excuse me, cork, and all of a sudden these people are not able to get their opinions heard or listened to by senior management. And that can be the source of an awful lot of problems. And I think that's the kind of reality that a bank examiner should be looking for rather than all of these formalities that people are insisting on now uh, in terms of Dodd-Frank. I, I filed a um, comment with the Fed because they've talked about risk management and they want to have a new rule for large institutions that says your board should have a risk committee and there should be somebody on the risk committee who knows about risk. <laughs> and I said, yeah, exactly. I said, hey, J.P. Morgan Chase had a risk committee and had somebody on the committee that knew about risk and they lost $5.8 billion. You don't want the formalities of risk management. Fannie and Freddie had risk management committees or at least committees with responsibility for risk management on their board. So did Lehman. What you want is to look at the realities. I had the general counsel of a large successful firm before we were arranging the interview with a CEO sort of downloading on me about how awful it was that their regulator was insisting that they have as a formal risk committee and do things in a certain formalistic way when they were doing very well, thank you, and, and they were doing well through a quite decentralized structure and, and quite a different way of doing business. So my bottom line is we've got to look for this dialectic. We've got to look for the quality of the decision-making process in both our public and private institutions or else we're going to be in trouble. And Dodd-Frank doesn't really do that. Thank you, Tom. And I, and I would say that's you know one of the reasons why I maybe one of the few people would read the book and sort of see Hayek in there in a way, because it is about the decentralization of knowledge. And, and I would agree that I think one of the flaws of, of Dodd-Frank is that attempt to really just, if we just centralize all risk and all knowledge in one place, somehow it'll work. And of course, is repeatedly not worked. I'll, I'll note as an aside, I, I appreciated the comments about various boards. Um, you know, people forget that Enron, for instance, was compliant already with all the Sarbanes-Oxley auditing board requirements, so it would have not have made a difference. I do want to ask, because I think it's helpful to get a little background, um, what led you to pick the firms you did for both the failures and successes? So process, or was this sort of, this is just sort of interesting? Nice question. Um, we started out, and I was looking all over for successful firms, and I remember asking about a number of firms and, and sort of making preliminary contact. And for one reason or another, they weren't relevant to what we were looking at. The commission was looking at a range of firms. So that gave me my opening. So when we interviewed Fannie Mae and did what we called a deep dive, really going down from the CEO through um, people in the inside of the organization, um, that gave me one firm. And then I, uh, we didn't have time for it. We were really, we only had a year to finish our work, and, and we were on a very tight budget. Um, but I insisted that we do some studies of Freddie Mac. You know, let's find out what the parallels are. So we interviewed a number of risk officers 
at Freddie Mac um, and the CEO and, and others. And it sort of built out. And when I sat back at the end, I looked, and the one institution we didn't interview was TD Bank in Canada, and of course BB&T, as you pointed out. Um, we didn't interview uh, TD Bank, but I started looking at their financial statements. And in 04, they said, we're loading up because America and United States subprime mortgages are a really great deal. In 05, they said, we've decided to get out <laughs> of the American residential mortgage market. Oh. In 06, they wrote, we've taken losses over 100 million bucks, which was a lot for that company, but we're out. In 2010, Edmund Clark, the CEO, gives an interview, and he says, you know, we got out of our exposure to subprime, and all the stock analysts wrote that I was an idiot. <laughs> so so, idiot? Um, so we, I, I sort of collected uh, as we went. Uh, some uh, comments are, are unfortunately off the record rather than on the record. I mean, in terms of Alex's point, that the market can stay irrational longer, and he has a marvelous twist on this that I quote in the book, longer than you can stay employed. <laughs> I uh, interviewed one risk officer of a major company, and she said to me, you know, I had two choices. Either I was going to be a pain in management's neck, or I was going to be known as a risk officer at a firm that blew itself up. So she left in 06, and the firm cratered in 08. It is really hard to be a risk officer, and that's why I get back to the role of supervisors. Um, Cliff Rossi, who is, uh, was a risk officer at a number of different organizations that failed, uh, City, WAMU, Countrywide, Freddie, I think it was, uh, I think Fannie, too. Um, he says that uh, when he finally went to the University of Maryland, uh, he was going to get a medal for protecting the financial system. <laughs> but he basically says what a risk officer needs is air cover. Now, the, if, if this, I'm not saying the risk officer is always right, but it's that you've got to have this conversation to figure out, to make a robust decision. And if the CEO doesn't want that, then, as far as I'm concerned, the supervisor is almost the only person left with enough clout to get it done. So what I recommended to the Fed, I mean, who knows what they're going to do. Right? <laughs> um, what I rec I'm used to my recommendations oh, not yeah. being heard. Um, you and me both. <laughs> what, uh, what I recommended to the Fed is that they send their examiners into these institutions, and they say, okay, show us major company decisions you made over the last year, and show us where you adjusted those decisions with input from the board, input from an engaged management team, input from the risk officer, heaven forbid, input from the regulator. And, and look for the realities of decision-making rather than just the formalities. And, and, and I would, would, would emphasize, I think this is an important factor at, at any institution. Uh, you know, there was some press the last couple of weeks about uh, looking at Tim Geithner's phone log, and it was, you know, the same people repeatedly. Uh, and, of course, I've seen similar things where they've looked at... Uh, Polson's during the crisis, and, and I think it's interesting, uh, you know, we have our new president here at Cato from BB&T. Um, you know, I talk to commercial bankers, and many of them say they had an impossible time trying to talk to either Polson or Geithner, whereas a small handful of investment banks were constantly on the phone with them. So I do think it's important to, you get in these groupthink situations, and of course that's one of the problems, I painful to say this as an economist, it's one of the problems when the Fed is stacked with economists on the board 
rather than having a diversity of viewpoints that challenges the conventional wisdom on things. Um, I have a, a number of questions, but I do want to see if there are questions from the audience first. Uh, I think we have one over here. Uh, and I will note, please identify yourself and please keep it in the form of a question. <laughs> uh, Mark Bertili, uh, that little uh, admonition is uh, one, of course, I hear from Alex all the time over <laughs> at uh, AEI. Um, Tom, I, I've just purchased the book and uh, look forward to uh, to reading it. But um, and you and I had you and I've had some discussions along this in the past. It it, it seems to me that uh, you feel that uh, at least in the financial services sector that regulation can be made to work, uh, and yet I'm not aware of any instances where it really has worked uh, in any meaningful way. And I think. Uh, Financial history, uh, not only recent uh, but uh, but going back further in time, is replete with examples of, of failed regulation. Can you point to any situation, any at any time, anywhere in the world, where there has been uh, successful financial services uh, regulation, particularly with regard to safety and soundness issues? Because I'm not aware of any. I, I don't want to get into the discussion of Canada versus the United States, but they they're probably a. a decent model. Um, I want to flip it around, Bert, because I agree with you. What I struggled with in this book was what would work. I mean, people, for example, have recommended breaking up banks. And I don't think it's just size of banks that's important. I think it's the complexity of these institutions that makes them unmanageable as well. But in terms of reality, I just didn't see that happening in the near future. So what I was grappling with was how can we make regulation more intelligent? It's, it's a suboptimal solution potentially, but if your regulators are worried about improving the quality of decision-making, that's a force for greater, not lesser market efficiency. And that's what I was struggling with with this proposed solution, that we had looked and we had tried... I mean, look where we're at. Uh, in the, the financial crisis, the retail markets, because we have deposit insurance, we didn't have lines of people standing outside of banks trying to get their money back. The panic and the lines of people standing to get their money back was electronic in the wholesale market. Because all of a sudden, losses occurred. Everybody had been on this happy bubble, and uh, losses occurred. And I don't know what's on my balance sheet for sure. I don't know what's on yours. So I'm going to get my money back as fast as I can. And so one of the solutions that I see happening now is that with these large, complex financial institutions, government has said, okay, we can't afford that kind of panic again. And so now the whole market is going away from market discipline rather than towards it. So it's that context where I'm trying to grapple with what's a reasonable solution that you can really convince these people to implement, both leaders in the industry and in the in government, um, that might work. And, and you know, as, as someone who shares Bert's uh, skepticism on, on regulation, I do think, to me, the, the most powerful takeaway of the book is, is the knowledge part of it. And it really got me thinking about Traditionally, we think about the real problem from too big to fail is, you know, you're going to get a funding advantage, you're going to be able to, you know, run your uh, rivals out of the market and gain market share. But I think this raises another issue, which is if your creditors, those who lend to you, feel like they have something at risk, 
they're going to they're going to exercise their voice when they talk to you. You're going to get, you know, the bondholders saying to the management, uh, we don't think you're doing things correctly, but certainly in a too big to world uh, too big to fail world, you've really eliminated that information flow from creditors to management uh, that I think actually makes for a dumber corporation. Uh, right here. My name is Stephen Short. You did not mention Citizens United, and I'm just wondering, I'm not talking about the legal right of corporations to contribute to the political process, uh, but whether anyone, any analysis has been done as to the consequences of such involvement and whether that made the situation worse. Citizens United, I believe, was after 08, so it didn't have an effect on the crisis as such. Uh, it may well have, well, no, I'm not, it, it's campaigns, and we're only just in a campaign cycle being influenced by it. So I think we're going to have to wait till we're down the road a bit to to get the implications in, in terms of practical results. But it is clear that the financial services industry had a large hand in writing the rules that we got in Dodd-Frank. And one of my favorite examples, just if you want a emblematic example, is the Financial Stability Oversight Council, where we finally decided we need one group that is going to be overseeing financial stability. And what do we do? We created a council of 15 members. And each constituency has their regulator on that council as either a voting or non-voting member. That's not a way to run a railroad. Um, and and Dodd-Frank is filled with that. So although we didn't see the effects of Citizens United, I think we did see the effects of constituency influence. Uh, there was a question here in front. Uh, microphone to gentleman in front. Yeah, I'm, I'm the ambassador of Barbados, but in, I'm wearing the hat now of a former Chase banker, and I went through their credit school, I've worked for several banks and been CEO of the bank. The, the one thing, and I, I thought it was very interesting, the discussion, the, the thing that I would like to just to point out, though, is that I don't believe you can regulate good decisions. I don't believe you can regulate greed. And what I found is this, is that um, you talk about the risk person in the bank and the CEO or someone making the decisions. I can assure you the CEO pretty, pretty well knows the risk he's taking. But sometimes you get people get boxed into a situation where they don't have choices. By this, let me, let me go one step further. I, I've been in a situation where, you know, you've had a result last year. You made X amount of money, and you had very peculiar situation that created that situation. So you had a bumper year. Do you think that the board or the shareholders take that in consideration? You've gone from this level of profit to this level. Guess what? Next year, you're going from this level to that. Well, that's where the things became problematic because what's going to happen to see you and everyone's going to fiddle here, fiddle there, and at some point in time, it'll just explode because of uh, the growth factor. And the I've had one time a, a CEO of a largest processing, um, uh, uh, processing company, yeah, and he comes and visits. I was chairman of a little company, and, and he didn't even ask to look at financials. He didn't even visit the company. He sat down in a room and made us an offer um, based on one thing. What are your sales? Because the market had told him that he needs to 
to, to get more market share. And so he just was going around gobbling up. Uh, so these are things that, um, you know, the, the rail force, there is the, I don't know what you call it, greed or whatever, and that's stuff to, to regulate. Um, I agree. Uh, one of my chapters is entitled Hyman Minsky, <laughs> Will It Happen Again? And that's a question, not an answer. Uh, answer is yes. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I, I'm just trying to push it <laughs> off a little and, and, and maybe mitigate some of the circumstances. You're absolutely right. There are all sorts of dynamics that make it really hard to govern well. But, for example, we interviewed the chief risk officer at Wells Fargo, who had gone in and found some units that were operating, not with a particular fact pattern you talked about, but basically going for a, a little more returns than, than they deserved. And, of course, it's always a red flag if somebody's simply going for market share because there's no natural limit to going for market share. You're always going for more. Um, and they, they actually replaced a, a couple of heads of major units because they were concerned about that dynamic. Um, that's a well-run company. Now, Chase, before the crisis, was a well-run company. Fortunately, um, Jamie Dimon had a concept of a fortress balance sheet, so when there were serious problems in terms of risk management, and one worries that it was hubris more than anything else. Um, after the crisis with the London office, they could take the $5.8 billion hit without going into the kind of problems that caused other companies to fail. It, but I agree with you. It's really – it's not easy. And it seems like to some extent, again, related to too big to fail, a lot of that is driven by the equity holders, which tend, in my opinion, to have – uh, very different interests than the creditors. And, of course, if we take the creditors off the table by saying you're going to get bailed out, then you are shifting more toward that risk-taking attitude. Before we get to another question, I want to maybe hey, ask – Mark, could I just make a comment? Oh, yes, please. Because there is this pressure both in the question and the answer uh, from equity markets. But uh, it's, I think it's important to realize the people we call the shareholders or the equity holders, those individuals are in fact not – shareholders or equity holders. They're hired managers of somebody else's money. And pension fund money they're, managers. They're, well, they're managers or they're, or they're union uh, managers or they're pension fund managers or they're mutual fund managers. But they, they themselves uh, are agents running to quarterly returns and liable to lose their job if the market stays irrational. And I don't think our discussion of the interplay between uh, financial markets and financial firms has really understood that fact. I, I, I would emphasize, but I would 100% agree. I, I think a big driver in some of this that has not been examined to the extent that it has is the sort of institutionalization of our retirement system where the, these, there are all sorts of governance failings in the pension fund industry that lead to that short-termism. Before we get to another question, I, I do want to ask what I sort of think is a macro question given that part of the title of the book is, is, is fail or failure. Um, I guess I want to ask... We repeatedly see places like Citibank where, you know, we've bailed out three times so far. And so the economist in me, you know, wants to ask the question, are we being over-optimistic thinking that firms are going to be able to change their culture to one that does encourage that display of knowledge? Or should we sort of rely more on that firm has a bad culture, it will fail. And the way we get rid of that bad culture is that firms with good culture expand and take over market share. And obviously, we short-circuit that in the financial services industry by not letting lots of firms fail when they should. 
So I, I guess my point would be, what do you really see the role of failure in this? Failure is really important. The trouble is that when you've got a financial panic, that as Bernanke said, and I, this is in David Wessel's book, and I, I, the people we interviewed believed it, that we were about to go into Depression 2.0. They're going to bail out everybody. And so at that point, failure falls back to the taxpayer and to inefficiencies in the financial system rather than if it's shoe companies or, or, well, or something I, else. I guess I would say consistent maybe with the theme of the book is that if you only talk to firms that look like they're going to fail, then many of them will tell you, yes, the world's going to come to an end if you don't bail us out. So again, well, an, an informational we, problem we, we there too. We got into the issue of the wisdom of what happened after the crisis. We were trying to look at what led to the crisis. In terms of Citigroup, uh, Charles Prince, who was the CEO, um, famously said he had sort of a sense of humor a uh, city doesn't have one good culture, it has five or six good cultures. And this goes to what I was saying about complexity. Particularly these firms, WAMU, others that, that grew by um, acquiring other firms, uh, end up with an undigestible mass unless, to build on your, your Hayek use of knowledge, um, like Jamie Dimon, you slap all of your organization into a common information platform so at least you can see enterprise-wide um, what kind of positions you're taking. Now, but you also have the problem of the conceptual platform. That is to say, you had all this information uh, uh, being shaped by some understanding of what the problem is, and that's where, as you so nicely say in the book, we have the problem of cognitive herding. Yes. Cognitive herding by firms, by governments, by central banks, by anybody, and so we all think about the problem in the same way, with the same categories. Uh, and that, that's a really a hard problem to, to diversify. The co- that's a nice Hayekian problem, uh, Mark. Absolutely. I think we had a question here up front. I mean, I'll make sure we get to gentlemen here in this. There was a woman back there. I'll get to. Thank you. Um, I'm Hans Koenig uh, from Dels Hopkins um, Yeah, If I understood you correctly, you're... What you're arguing is that um, we sh- regulators should be focusing less on the risk management institutions of uh, of a bank, but more on the risk taking culture and the uh, and the risk management culture, who's talking to whom, and so on. Now, the problem problem with that is that it's as an outsider, it's quite hard to even understand what the culture is, um, or even or, or even to regu- or, or to go in to regulate these things because it's it's hard to measure, right? You you can't you. How do you? What criteria would you would you put in place to assess risk management cultures? Could you maybe give um, a couple of concrete examples how regulators could go into banks and improve these cultures and draw, to try to yeah to try, to try to prevent bank failures? Well, um, my personal takeoff point, and one would hope it would evolve, was to start at the top and get the bank or the institution to say, okay, in the last year, here's a major decision. Here's how we modified that decision based on input. You want to show that people are willing to listen. Um, Herbert Allison, who was a treasury in, in a number of private sector positions before, recommends for the board, he's never recommended it for a regulator, that the board undertake, sort of send questionnaires to people at different levels of the firm to try to get an understanding of their culture. And one of the best studies that I uh, saw while I was at the commission 
was on the regulator side, and that was the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that published a, um, a survey they did, and it was anonymous, uh, that quoted all of their examiners. And, and when you heard the culture of those examiners, like, be sure you don't do anything that gets you into trouble, don't rock the boat, et cetera, you knew what that culture was about, and you knew that those aren't the people that can do much more than check the boxes. So um, it's not easy, but I think we've got to start down that road. And there are tools that one can apply. Um, uh, right here in the back. Oh, well. Hi, Tom. Uh, Vern McKinley. Um, I want to move on to one of your specialty areas, Fannie and Freddie, which uh, pops into mind when talking about cultures. I mean, here we are four years later. They're just as big as they were. Freddie's shrunk a tiny bit. Fannie's about, you know, $3 trillion about where it was a few years back. No plans on the table to definitely wind either one of them down. I know in the 90s you had proposed some roadmaps to get them wound down. Do you want to update that if possible? Do you see any possible way they could be eased back into the private sector um, over over a six-year, eight-year, ten-year period, or is it kind of a lost cause? When I spoke at Cato, and I think it was 1989, after coming out with my monograph, Bill Niskanen, who was the head of Cato at the time, um, after the talk, so we sort of wandered in the garden. You guys had a different format, not quite as elegant as this, but it was really <laughs> nice. And we were talking, and he said, how do we get rid of these guys? And I said, well, once they fail, I'm sure you can do anything you want with them. And I was wrong. <laughs> uh, hopeless optimism. Um, I don't have an answer because hidden in your question is a question of what the political process thinks about the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. If we were willing to say we don't care about the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, which simply is, is such a long-term instrument with a tail on it at least um, that can't exist in all phases of the credit cycle, then you could come out with one answer about whether we need Fannie, Freddie, or anybody else. If the political process says we do want a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, um, then what we've got to look at, and I go back to my discussion with Bert, um, we've got to look at, at second-best kind of solutions. And there are some, but in the end, this one has to be solved on the very highest level. The way the 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 2008 law was written, only Congress can repeal the charter of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So that turns it from a policy issue into much more of a politics issue. I, I will note, having worked on the 2008 Act, you can impose losses on creditors within the framework that's currently in law, which to me certainly one of the more important characteristics of a GSE is this perception that creditors will be protected. So that is certainly something uh, Treasury could have done, FHFA could have done, and certainly we would have, uh, I think, in my opinion, avoided. Would you have done it? If, I would. If I would have imposed losses on creditors. Absolutely. Agents, FHFA can put them in receivership, Fannie and Freddie. Both. Yes, I they don't recommended need... that from the beginning. Okay. Get shareholders okay. out of the okay. equation, because until you take shareholders out of the equation, Fannie and Freddie are in this anomalous position where the government has 
under law, has stepped into the position of the board and management to try to restore these institutions to financial health. And what that means is that FHFA constantly gets whipsawed with these demands, gee, we want you to support national housing policy, and they come back and they say, hey, our legal responsibility is to support the GSEs, and that means tighter credit standards than other policymakers might want. Um, in other words, the public-private mix that made the GSC so hard for people to deal with in the beginning is continuing to confound people. But I, I agree with you. I mean, they should be in receivership, and at that point, Absolutely. you can make a, a policy decision on, on what your debt holders, what happens to them or the MBS holders, mortgage-backed security holders. But you can also begin selling off assets and doing other things. Uh, before I go to the next question, I, I will say that uh, the receivership framework for Freddie and Fannie that was put in place 2008 before their failure is in some ways very much mirrors Dodd-Frank. So if you believe the orderly resolution authority in Dodd-Frank prevents too big to fail, then you need to explain why it did not prevent too big to fail for Freddie and Fannie. Uh, with that said, uh, the woman here in front of uh, who's been very patiently waiting, Hi, Ann Stone, and uh, I was one of very few women in the Southeast uh, United States that helped start and organize a bank, went through the problems. We started at the height of the SNL crisis in 88, which is sort of interesting, started a national bank at that time, um, and we're smart enough, and we had problems with the culture of personality in, in the bank and stuff like that that was causing some concern to uh, make it profitable enough that BB&T eventually bought it, so ended up being a good investment. But I wanted to ask, um, a lot of speculation was done when the financial meltdown happened uh, that a couple things were tantamount to the drivers of the crisis. One was the effect of the GSEs on the primary uh, mortgage market and the percentage of risk that went up from 20 to 52% under Clinton. And the other was the change in the rule, FAS Rule 157. And I just wondered you know, how a change in that rule could be done, and nobody saw that it was going to devalue all the portfolios of all the all the. Um, that the, the mark, to mark to market. market. That's the mark to market. Yeah. And and yeah. how somebody could not see that. And then second part, as a female, uh, of course, a lot has been written that there would have been less of a crisis if there were more women in the financial markets. Well, let me answer <laughs> the last one first. That I, I mean, given what I saw and 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 the conclusion. I reached in the book. Diversity helps because you've got people from a multiplicity of perspectives. And you can, huh? I, 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 I would not want to betray any prejudice by saying what women do, but uh, I think a diversity on, uh, on the board elsewhere is really helpful in a lot of cases. But you can always point to counterexamples. There's a woman who's on the risk committee of J.P. Morgan Chase when they just took their hit, um, $5.8 billion. So it depends. Mark-to-market is really... What we saw was that certain tools in the hands of the right managers are really good, and that would apply to all of derivatives. And in the hands of the wrong people, really don't work. Goldman uses mark-to-market, and they do it every night. Goldman almost went out of business in 1994, again, because of operations in their London office. I don't know what it is about <laughs> the London. weather in London, um, or maybe the regulatory framework. 
Um, and they got, they created a parallel structure to their traders of what they call controllers. And every night the controller will mark a trader's position to market. And what that does is it gives them, and then they roll it up to management. What that does is it gives them a really good view of what's going on. The trouble with mark-to-market generically is that it can exacerbate your cycle. When you're in the bubble, which incidentally is when you need the risk management, afterwards everybody gets religion. When you're in the bubble, mark-to-market says, oh, your asset values are going up, everything is great, don't worry, be happy. And then when you're in a crunch, all of a sudden the values drop and you're done. Um, So it's a tool, and in the right hands, it's really wonderful. And in the wrong hands, um, it it doesn't work at all. And in the end, I don't know the answer and and would like to talk with somebody with more practical experience, because that's how I learn is talking with people with different experiences. But you wonder if one shouldn't keep two different sets of books so that you can benefit the investor. And that was really the part of the loss in this whole um, situation. Uh, the investor can, can get a better sense of um, the quality of an institution and its books. I, I, I will note, I mean, I've sort of been on the, on the fence on it, but on mark to market, but you know, I will note, you have always, in my understanding, as a non-accountant, had the option of whether you held something to maturity and hence did not mark to market or whether you held it in your trading book. Uh, and for the most part, and I, I think this is also a symptom of sort of the group think that you got from Treasury because they talked to investment banks on a regular basis, which were largely marked to market. I mean, Goldman's book is 80, 90 percent marked to market. Bank of America is maybe 15 percent marked to market. So if you talk to only investment banks, then you come up with something like the TARP where you want to buy assets at, at below market values because that doesn't work for commercial banks. But again, I think there's more flexibility to it there. We have one time for one question left and uh, – Gentleman over here. Thank you. Mehdi Fishtali, Georgetown University. My question refers to all uh, the, the bubble cycle. And reality, what happened in the subprime market is that a lot of investors re- relied on the um, rating agencies' ratings <laughs> when it comes to taking this portion on that portion, etc. And when you look at how these products were built by the investment banks, they were be- built backwards. They were looking at what should they put in in order to get that particular rating because they have clients for that particular rating. In other words, the people, the banks are able to recruit br- very bright people but also give them all the means in order to be as efficient, in order to be able to do things very quickly, much more than what one can have in the rating agencies. Plus, they know exactly how the rating agencies work and they know exactly what they need to do in order to have this rating. And not by me, they don't want to mislead, to mislead people, but simply they want to, to, to extract as much cash as possible. That's what uh, their job is. So how do you look at this, and how do you think that the rating agencies should behave in the future, and what lessons did they, did they take from what happened in 2008? I try to deal with the rating agencies, at least to some extent in the book, because you've got to. And um, I would add to your list the fact that when a particular analyst was really good and really understood things, then they could trouble their salary by going and working for an investment bank to go structure products for another rating. 
it it's a really difficult situation to some extent when we looked at moody's you had a sense that when a lot of these firms were more cautious the investment banks when they were partnerships because in a partnership you can lose everything and then they turned to shareholder their own companies and you had a sense with moody's that when they spun off from Dun and Bradstreet and went on their own they picked up a, a lot of incentives to take risk and I have a chapter in the book on sort of organizational structure and how that can shape uh risk taking i'd like to go to the other side of the equation there's a section in the book and i'd apply this to the regulators as well but to everybody board members the power of simple questions in other words there are certain simple questions you can ask and when you ask them and pursue the answers you can learn something in the late 2000s Fannie Mae took a hit a large hit for an ordinary company not large for Fannie Mae because it was such a big company on manufactured housing loans and in 2003 the chief credit officer at Fannie Mae wrote an after action report saying one of the lessons is you can't trust the AAA rating because these we bought AAA pieces on these mobile home loans and they cratered on us <laughs> um again if if somebody starts to ask questions and say why aren't you doing due diligence on what you're buying regardless of whether it has a rating and remember underneath that rating in terms of the content are also concentration issues <laughs> You know, a triple A of one kind may be really different if it has a dispersed um, amount of, of of assets behind it versus concentrated all in subprime in Las Vegas or you name it. Um, so in the end, the only answer really is due diligence. That investors really fell down. Lou Ranieri, in a wonderful quote, said, "No one was defending the deal. You didn't have two sides. You had." sort of this prosperity that everybody thought would never end of all this money flowing in from overseas and investors were just rushing to put it someplace and so AAA looks pretty good particularly when if it's a subprime AAA security I can get a higher yield than if it were prime mortgages and a AAA security you know the simple question risk and return are correlated somebody had to ask besides Edmund Clark what's going on here I think that was a very big part of it. I'll, I'll say as a little self-promotion, I would certainly encourage you to look at uh, August. I came out with a paper on the rating agencies, which is online at Cato.org, and certainly offer some prescriptions of how I thought that that failed. But uh, I'd like to thank our, our panelists. I think it's been a, a fascinating discussion. And really, again, uh, I got a lot out of the book and very much encourage you to take a look at it. Uh, I want to thank everybody and welcome you upstairs to the second floor to lunch. Uh, and again, thank you, everyone. Thanks.